Hello, Disruptors. Thank you for all who have joined us for our conversations on Practice Disrupted. Janine and I are taking a much-needed break through the new year, something that I hope each of you are able to do. We're in the third episode of our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion playlist. If you're just tuning in, the premise of the series is to explore race, equity, and identity in architecture through storytelling. In this episode, we're revisiting episode 35, Asian American Architects. We've invited five different Asian American architects onto the show who are actively leading the profession of architecture forward. They'll share their lived experiences and help us understand how we can teach, empower, and build greater awareness across the industry. I hope you enjoy these episodes on Diverse Voices as much as we have enjoyed pulling them together. We will be back with new content in Season 6, as well as Episode 101 in early February. I'm a daughter of two Chinese parents that immigrated at different points in their lives to follow the American dream. My father came to the U.S. with his family during his elementary years. My mom found her way to the States later in life for an education at an American university. They met and fell in love at UCLA, on the same campus where it just so happens I met my husband. As a daughter of a plasma physicist and a computer scientist, I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is a pretty unusually diverse place given its size. In my younger years, a lot of discrimination came from the fact that I was from Los Alamos. I remember attending local camps and kids asking me if we glow in the dark. I never really saw color, as it were, until one afternoon, sitting outside the library during lunch, I had a conversation with one of my friends about her internship in D.C. and how peers bucketed their friends demographically. My Black friends, my Hispanic friends, my Chinese friends. I had never even considered classifying my friends that way, let alone people. Sure, I experienced microaggressions growing up, but it was always something that was water off the back. Besides, if people assumed that I could do martial arts like Bruce Lee, who was I to let them believe otherwise? Then in 1999, coming down the NBC Suites elevator to get breakfast before heading out to the Women's World Cup final, where USA was playing China in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, a seemingly nice white father sporting red, white, and blue regalia took one look at my family and said, they are here to support China. Never mind my vintage U.S. jersey, which he clearly could not identify, nor the more subtle U.S. symbols that my family was wearing. That day stuck in my mind, because it was only the beginning. Everyone hawking their wares on the way to the stadium always offered us the Chinese memorabilia first. It was like I was confronted with it every ten steps I took. Sure, the U.S. took home the cup, but that day left a deeper imprint on me. My parents raised us as typical Americans, who happened to frequent Chinese grocery stores and restaurants on a regular basis. Wasn't this normal? They wouldn't be able to understand one another in their native tongues because the dialect was so different, so I grew up learning English. I love the red envelopes that randomly showed up once a year, not because of its symbolism. I frankly had no idea what they meant, only that it was Chinese New Year. As an adult, I struggle not looking American enough to be fully considered American, and definitely not Chinese enough to be considered Chinese. Having lost both sets of grandparents, I feel as though I have lost some connection to my ancestral past, and I'm still trying to reconcile how I should raise my two children, now three and five. They are mixed. My son looks too Chinese to be Caucasian, and my daughter's light brown hair and gray hazel eyes might have fooled you if not for her button nose and hooded eyelids. Part of what keeps me engaged in AIA leadership is the number of women, particularly Asian women, that have come up to me and said, thank you for being an example. The architect doesn't fit the lawyer, doctor, engineer career paths that my parents or typical Chinese families may have envisioned for their children, but I have carved out my own unique identity within the profession. Working as an experienced designer at Slack, there are those architects who have told me I am not an architect because I no longer design buildings. 
Perhaps I'd become accustomed to residing somewhere in the in-between. Not quite enough of one thing to be considered whole by one party or another. That's okay. It means that I have that much more to understand and learn about taking multiple paths rather than walking a singular one. Like a lot of the parents of my childhood friends in Hong Kong, my mom and dad also fled communist rule from Shanghai and Beijing to start a new life in this new colony in Hong Kong. There were limited opportunities for universities, and the looming return of Hong Kong to China meant huge sacrifices for these parents to send their kids away abroad for education and hope for them to stay there. I was 16 when I came alone to the States to start 11th grade. My earliest concept of a Chinese woman is my mom. Smart, stylish, strong-headed, and one with so many friends. The women in my mom's generation were typically homemakers. My mom was an exception. She worked full-time as a nurse practitioner for the power company's in-house clinic. And after school, I would hang out, and I saw her taking charge of medical emergencies in the clinic and saw a confident, strong, professional woman. I was fortunate to be born into this first generation of Chinese girls who were being educated towards a career so that we can chart our own course and be financially independent of our spouses. Hong Kong women had a pretty limited offering then. You either go into medicine, law, education, or business. And as early as ninth grade, we were all sorted into different tracks in school so that we will lead to those careers. When it came time for me to enroll in college in the States, it was a no-brainer for me to go into a pre-med track. I was a biomath major and often the only woman in some classes. Architecture was not yet on my radar. No role models for one, and I couldn't even imagine a woman architect, or Chinese one for that matter. Maybe I heard of Ian Pei, but he might as well be an alien from another planet. And what is architecture anyways? I have no idea what architects do. Somewhere in my third year of college, a sculpture teacher just randomly dropped a question as to whether I've looked into architecture. Growing up, the worldview of Hong Kong Chinese is black and white. You're either on the right side or on the wrong side. That Hong Kong brand of value is a mixture of the culture, Confucius, British colonial system of class, and certainly Christianity-derived values of ethics and so. So it really did come as a shock to me to learn in architecture school at Sciarc in Columbia that most everything is gray. Most things are circumstantial. They're evolving, shifting, and what you see is dependent on where you stand. How un-Chinese is that line of thinking? Architecture was just brainwashing my Chinese brain. Along the way in my education as an architect, I found that architecture is surely a really demanding mistress. Fundamentally, she asked for you to have a paradigm shift. I saw that to practice architecture well, you have to sign on to an integrated work life. That fluidity is certainly not my parents' paradigm. For them, work is office and home is life. But the underlying idea of that tenacious life somehow fits this Chinese mindset quite well. The first Chinese-American woman architect I met was Billy Tan in 1984 on her opening at Art on the Beach, which is an annual artist-architect collaborative public art festival in New York City. Billy was in her 30s with a newborn baby, a partner in her architecture firm, an educator, and working with artists, using her undergrad fine arts training to develop her voice in architecture and just seemingly unencumbered by the culture she grew up in, a Chinese immigrant household in an almost all-white New Jersey town. She was a role model I can truly identify with, someone, as we say now, as being intersectional, as I am. Her path seemed possible for me, too. While I was unaware of actively copying her during the years I worked with Billy and with Todd Williams, I began to accumulate stories and encounters of prejudice in our profession. They're like a hundred little needle pokes. They don't hurt too much when it happens, but it has this cumulative effect of numbing over the years. Sometimes you defend yourself against them, 
and sometimes maybe your partner does that. Still to this day, a Chinese woman architect on a construction site—it's a novelty, and that has got to change. I'm originally from Richlands, Virginia, a small town in the heart of the Appalachian Mountains. My father and his family had settled the land many generations before, and he grew up there as a rebel with an artistic streak and a desire to see the whole world. And the world came to him one day in the form of my mother, a beautiful young college graduate who'd made her way all the way from cosmopolitan Hong Kong to this tiny town in the mountains. My mom's parents were raised in Guangdong in southern China and had fled during the forties across the border to Hong Kong. My mom immigrated to the U.S. by herself when she was 16 in the 70s, looking for an adventure, and she found it with my dad in Richlands. There, they started an amazing honky tonk restaurant in an old dairy barn owned by my father's family, and that's where I grew up. And I grew up half Asian in an extended family in a town that were almost completely white. I remember not really understanding that I looked different from my friends until I saw a picture after my first grade birthday party, and I saw for the first time that my hair was black and long, my skin was brown, and I was visibly different when I'd never really felt different before. Growing up in the South in a small town, there were many times in my childhood when I was teased mercilessly on the bus, when kids said cruel or racist things to me. But in large part, I was treated with kindness, but always knowing that I was different. After college, I spent time teaching in China, and my students there were fascinated by me being mixed race. I remember one student rifling through a dictionary and asking me, "What is it like to be、um, a mongrel?" I laughed. People in China were more forthright about race than we are in the U.S., and not a day went by there when someone didn't ask, "What are you? Where are you from?" Americans, to so many people there, were blonde, blue-eyed. But through my presence, I hope to show them a more complex, a more diverse, a more hopeful version of America. My business partner and I started our firm seven years ago. We'd met in grad school. She's also Asian, also from the South, and I think that we found that growing up different, being different, has given us an ease and a skill to connect with people from all walks of life, to listen and to understand across difference, and to better empathize with the many viewpoints we need to understand as architects. And the values of our families, the blended values of being Southern and being Asian, of Southern warmth, of immigrant hustle, of belief that gathering around food can bring us together and build community, are at the backbone of our firm culture, shaping our work every day. I'm a third-generation only child of American-born Chinese parents, Charles Li Dongqin and Ethel Waju Qin. They met in the Navy during World War II in Washington, D.C. My father was a professor, an aeronautical engineer who worked on the Apollo mission, and also in plastics. My mom was a homemaker and special education teacher with an economics degree. The duality of my upbringing and where I belonged or who my tribe was was ever present. We were neither traditional Chinese nor seen as real Americans, whatever that was or is. Yet traditional values. Like caring for the group or your family before yourself, were deeply ingrained. I'd often refer to myself as an American girl in a Chinese wrapper, and survived my share of slurs and microaggressions since kindergarten. But to cope and move forward, I boxed those parts of myself off. In a world defined by blackness or whiteness, I've always existed in the in-between space as an Asian American, politically. Culturally and socially, growing up in Michigan, Boston, Ohio, Los Angeles, and New York, wherever my dad's work took us, shaped my multicultural upbringing. We actively participated in the Congregational and Presbyterian churches with strong social justice programs. We spoke only English at home, and I rebelled against Chinese school, but later regretted the loss of my roots and ability to work abroad. And studied Mandarin in college and after. Our family dinners for New Year's, weddings, or funerals in New York City Chinatown were a metaphor for societal change and my own evolution. At first, everyone only spoke Cantonese, except me and Mom. Then half spoke Cantonese and half spoke Mandarin, 
and then most everyone spoke English. My husband is from Arkansas. Like many other cousins and many other American families, we're international, interracial, intergenerational, and integrated. I'd say being the daughter of an engineer and a woman architect had a stronger influence on my career path than being Asian American. But aren't those one and the same? Study hard, work hard, don't rock the boat, be self-sufficient, and be best. I rarely met Asian Americans like myself, especially in the field of historic preservation. When I graduated from Ohio State in architecture in the 1970s, I was only one of four women in a class of 60. My goal was to start my own firm. In the 70s, we lived and breathed earth stewardship and energy conservation. Mentors, friends, and networks all have had a huge influence on my career and becoming a global citizen. They showed me how rewarding a career in public service with government and nonprofits could be. They also inspired me to actively contribute to civic life and make a difference in people's lives, starting with the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, and more recently the advocacy to save 70 Mulberry Street, my dad's grade school in Chinatown. I served in leadership roles in AIA and New York City government and other civic organizations. As New York chapter president and a national vice president, assistant commissioner, and executive director, these roles showed me the power of collaboration and activism to make people's lives better. Most importantly, they enabled me to bring diverse and emerging voices to the table and foster leadership in others. Now, I'm on to a new chapter, creating my own consultancy, Design Connects. To bring arts, architecture, and urban design together. I'm a first-generation Chinese American, born in Minnesota to immigrant parents from Taiwan. I spent my early childhood in small towns in the American Midwest, where my sister and I were not only the only Asians, but oftentimes we were the only people of color. However, that situation changed when my family and I moved to Los Angeles in the fourth grade. And I quickly became immersed in a diverse Southern Californian culture, where I had friends of many different ethnicities and backgrounds, though ironically, not so many were Asian. As a child of immigrant parents, growing up in the late '80s and early '90s, African American culture was my American culture, especially throughout high school, when the bulk of my friends were African American, many of whom I'm still connected to to this day. I developed a love of hip hop, basketball, and urban culture. I was a member of the Black Student Union. Graffiti, tagging, and sneakerhead culture were the initial catalysts for a love of visual culture and formal languages that got me interested in design as a career path. When I went to USC as an undergraduate, I actually initially majored in architecture and minored in African American studies. But as many hyphenated Americans do, I really discovered my own self-identity as an Asian American in college. For the first time. I was exposed to and experienced the fact that there actually was such a thing as an Asian American subculture. I joined an Asian American fraternity, and I changed my minor to Asian American studies. In my Asian American studies thesis, I based my paper on the inherent contradictions between two quotes. While the Japanese proverb "the nail that stands up gets hammered down" might describe the nuances of traditional East Asian cultural beliefs. The American Civil Rights Movement might best be encapsulated by Malcolm X's infamous quote: "It's the hinge that squeaks that gets the grease." To me, that is the complexity and contradiction of being Asian American. We are labeled the model minority in part because of our cultural values of keeping our heads down and working hard, while oftentimes being overlooked as seemingly invisible because we do not speak up. Architecture is both a discipline and a profession that has historically been dominated by a white male perspective. As Asians in architecture, we have clearly benefited from our white adjacency, while simultaneously being overlooked and dismissed for our otherness. As a longtime educator, it has not been lost on me that the ratio of Asian American and Asian international students in our student bodies is not proportionally reflected in leading our discipline. This is not dissimilar to the demographics of women in architecture, which at USC is quite noticeably proportionally dominated by female students. Yet, in both cases, women and Asians. As we move up the ranks in the discipline, those numbers seem to shift. Whether it is in the faculty that teach our students, the lecture series we idolize, or the leadership of the profession, 
I've spent most of my architectural career thinking of my own personal beliefs and my design beliefs as two separate identities. However, more recently, with the COVID-19 pandemic and its exposure of social and cultural inequities in our society, including, but not limited to, systemic racism, housing shortages, economic disparity, environmental crises, and more, these issues are all directly related to the built environment and actually demand the most creative and innovative design solutions rather than the most utilitarian. My identity, my work, and perhaps more importantly, my voice are starting to come together. And as a result, I'm trying to incorporate more of the things that I believe in. Justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. Not only into design culture, but my design work as well. I really do believe that architecture is the expression and materialization of our value systems. And if that's the case, then as a designer and an architect, I cannot separate what I do from who I am and what I believe in. Having listened to everyone's stories, what stood out in your mind or what came to mind or even what new realizations did you make, not only maybe about one another, but but yourself while listening. Annie, let's start with you. Well, I really appreciated everyone's story. I mean, it's just an amazing connection that we all have, you know, because we all came from different generations of immigrants. And I think that the thing that I really took away from uh, listening to you and hopefully with this conversation too, is almost like a sense of like a call to action now. Like now that I've and, you know, really think about the identity and I look at your identity and hear your stories. What should I be doing, both as an architect and educator, uh, an interior designer, and just as another Asian person? Alvin, how about you? Well, I would say maybe something that for most of my career in architecture, my identity has been something I've not necessarily ignored, but really was not part of any of the conversations that I ever encompassed and actually in some ways maybe went out of my way to avoid in terms of, you know, articulating myself as different, uh, really trying to, you know, always go out of the way to, let's say, fit in more rather than identify my differences or the, you know, the differences in my background. And I think, uh, I kind of hint at it or talk about that directly in, in terms of, you know, the, the quotes that I'm comparing. But I think that's also something that I see in a lot of the conversations that are being had by others here. And maybe just a longer legacy of what being Asian American or being Asian in America has been, has historically been a kind of effort to try to claim that white adjacency, you know, in terms of uh, really positioning our, ourselves as you know, taking that model minority myth thing as something that is a virtue rather than something that is actually its true origin story is a divisive term rather than a thing to be proud of. It's actually something that's meant to separate us and, and identify the fact that trying to proclaim that racism doesn't exist and that we're the proof of it. Yeah, listening to your story in particular and talking about the my, the model minority that's been a big learning curve. I don't know for the rest of you, but at least for me through all of this. And then I actually want to acknowledge that I feel completely accidental, but that the way that this panel came forward is actually not diverse when you think about all of the people that are bucketed under the Asian label too. So this is, in fact, a conversation that we might need to revisit again with more East Asian individuals as well. But sorry, Alvin, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, not at all. And I, I think, you know, it was a term because of that Asian American studies background that I was aware of, but then it's obviously resurfaced a lot recently, you know, and I think is one of the things that, you know, us as a, it's interesting to call us a culture because we are actually so many cultures in terms of, of people of Asian ancestry in this country, but like that we are not a monoculture and that we are a diverse collection of backgrounds as cultural backgrounds, but also as individuals. Ming, do you want to chime in? 
Yeah, I thought it's it's interesting. I think Alvin mentioned the word legacy, and I think Annie said the word generations. That a theme that came up in a lot of our conversations were um, our parents and the people that came before us. And I think for every immigrant group in America, that's something to consider as part of you know as our history and what they did and where we want to be going. And I think there's a, a kind of poignancy and a kind of emphasis on thinking about previous generations in Chinese American culture, which is what I'm part of and thinking about filial piety and what we owe to our ancestors. So I think it's, as Annie mentioned, being at a time that feels like a call to arms. I think it's very interesting feeling like my mom came here and wanted to assimilate and I didn't grow up speaking Cantonese. And basically my whole life, I wanted to be like everybody else. Um, I wanted to be like all the white kids um, in my school and in town. And um, it's interesting now thinking about how our generation and the generations coming after us are positioning ourselves in terms of reclaiming Asian American identity and seeing it in a new light. So I think it's like Alvin mentioned, I think for me for a long time, it's something that I kind of ignored. And I've been really interested in social justice and equity efforts, but often as an ally and thinking first about allyship and how, what I could do for other, other people. Um, and it's kind of the beginning of me thinking about what can I do for people like me that are Asian American. So I think it's a, it's a confusing and exciting time right now. Susan? Sure. I feel like I was really struck by the similarities in our lived experience. And also it inspired me to well, similar to all of you, I wanted to blend in, or I never thought of myself as that different, except other people see us as different, right? They put a label on us. So now I just feel like we need to reclaim who we are and that our difference or our similarities give us a certain strength. And that we have been able to negotiate in many different facets of the world, enable us to be stronger, to help others. I tried to figure out, Ming, why did I feel this passion for helping others, right? It's part of our culture, Asian culture, or my religious upbringing, but also Maybe it's to cure some of the injustice that we've survived and thrived through. But reclaiming some of that heritage, I think, is really part of our being. It's a really great point that you made. You know, why are we all collectively trying to help others? Right? Ming talked about the allyship. You know, Elvin, you were, during the pandemic, the leaders of, of that whole thing that you did to, you know, to 3D print all the masks for the healthcare workers. And you led a whole bunch of us to behind you to do that effort. I mean, that's not a racial injustice work, but in a way that, you know, the, the kind of care for the community. I think that the big difference of operating as individuals here in the kind of culture of individualism when our own sort of parents' culture is about the community, right? Like a Chinese person is not that important. It's the fact that you are part of this entire, you know, group of people that is important. That's been drilled into our heads from when we're young, right? Think about others. Think about the whole group's survival and and their elevation. So I think we're always pivoting between that being here in America and being that kind of individual expression and coming back to our Asian roots and that yeah, we got to do things for our community. But I think that in really kind of interesting thing is that, Susan, I think, you know, your like long and rich and amazing career, I think that my feeling is that you probably have used your identity really well already. I found myself also pivoting between when it's useful for me to be more Chinese, I will take that. Right. When it's not so useful for me to be Chinese, I'll just kind of blend in. And we all have that ability to pivot in some way. And, you know, more and more so, I felt very fortunate to have this kind of identity. And I look forward to, like, even, like, for example, like Ming, 
you're a biracial person, really, like my child is, right? And wanting to hear from you about the difference, like between, you know, some of us who look Asian, you know, have both sets of Asian parents, but immigrated here and try to pivot between those two positions and you who actually physically look like both. And how do you feel about your leverage with that identity? Uh, I, I was amazed when I moved to California to see children at the farmer's market, like 85% of children were biracial. And when I grew up, I felt like I was the only one. And I remember kind of desperately looking for like any kind of representation. Like if there was like a black haired Barbie, I would like cling to that as like some something that looked a little bit like me. And, you know, I think being half white doesn't make me feel white at all. I, I think I identify more with being Asian American because I feel different than the place that I grew up in a small town in Appalachia. But then when I went to China, uh, I was really different in China. People would ask me every day, where are you from? Are you from Sri Lanka? Are you Indian? Where are you from? Students asking me um, if I was a mongrel or using words that were not appropriate um, to ask about what it meant to be half Asian. And so I'm glad to know that it's a more common, it's a more common thing. And my, my son, who's six years old, is also mixed race and is in a class with, with other mixed race children. But it's kind of, I feel like that's a, the next frontier of understanding racial politics in America, that mixed race people, we often get lumped in with, with other groups. But there's a kind of special confusion around being mixed race that's really hard to navigate. And yeah, I don't know. And Ming, if I could just jump in for a minute. When I heard that Kamala Harris, our vice president, went to Georgia, I cried. I didn't think of her as being Asian American, right? And yet having an Indian mother. And so it really brought to the fore, especially in this time, especially with the anti-Asian hate, you know, what being American is all about, like kind of crazy mixed up. And yet, how do you also claim who you are, right? You can define who you are, but people want you to be one thing or the other. They don't allow you to be more multifaceted, which you are, right? We all are. Hey, Alvin, I was wondering, I mean, your kids are mixed, right? Yeah, my wife is, uh, well, my, my kids are particularly mixed. So I'm obviously Chinese and my wife is uh, Mexican-American, born in Boyle Heights here in East L.A., but both my kids are half Mexican, half Chinese, but uh, American passports and British passports. So they were born in London. So they're 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 British, American, Mexican, Chinese. No, it's interesting because um, my daughter, she's half white and half mostly Chinese. That's most of my heritage, and which I found out um, actually not recently. But you know, she has from day one. Uh, been white passing. I mean, she really does not look Asian at all. Like she really looks white and with some kind of, you know, maybe slightly Latina look or a Middle Eastern look, but definitely white passing. And it was only in after Black Lives Matter that she began to have a real awakening and now claim herself to be, you know, Scandi Chinese, all of that together and really kind of going after the kind of social injustice. But I'm just thinking for Elvin's kids and now Ming, when you have your children, it's going to be even more mixed up probably. Like the burden of the mixed race kids, you know, and Ming, you have a personal experience with that. That kind of dual identity of having both races and having to, like Elvin, in your case, your kids are both like from actually minority groups, right? So they have this kind of double identity going on there. You know, the the burden of those children coming up, it reminded me of like either Time Magazine or National Geographic, like several years ago had a cover where they kind of computer generated, like AI generated a person, which is a mix of all the races. And you can't tell what this woman is. And it says like, this is the face of future, you know, uh, increasingly so we're going to get all mixed up and stuff but for the time being I'd like to hear about you know Alvin you raising uh, children that definitely look 
different and have they spoken about their burden and Ming, you spoke about your particular burden, especially, you know, growing up in a small town. My daughter grew up in L.A. And so, you know, she was okay with it, except I do remember one incident in high school where uh, when I was picking her up at one day, she dragged me to a group of friends and said, this is my mom. I am half Chinese. This is really my mom. And the friends were in disbelief. They said, no, 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 you're pulling our leg, you know, whatever it is. And later on, she basically said, you know, mom, I just like in the last few years, she said, I have heard like racial slurs against Asians, bad jokes make on the about Asians to me because they don't think I'm Asian. And that I've just kind of taken it for granted, you know, and I just kind of like laughed along with them. And now I have this entire awakening and this guilt about not standing up for, you know, basically half of who I am. But I'm interested to hear how Elvin is dealing with it with his children. I think with my kids, it's, I don't think that they see it as a burden at all. I actually think they, mm-hmm. they, they see it as an advantage. Like, like they feel deeply connected to both cultures and they see it as, well, I will also give it a little bit of context. We live in the San Gabriel Valley here in Los Angeles, which is basically a, a part of Los Angeles where half the population is Asian and half the population is Latino. So my, my kids get to be majority in both contexts, um, which, whichever context they're in here. But I think it's also shifted a lot because of shifts in popular culture in America, right? So let's say even just within the last 10 years, now it's possible to see Asians on mainstream television and in popular media and seen as desirable and seen as cool and there actually are people that they can look up to and admire that are the people that people are trying to be like in popular mainstream mm-hmm. culture. And I think there was a time, you know, uh, all of us in, the, in this space now will recognize this where there weren't those examples, right? The only examples of Asians being portrayed in popular media were either objectified as sex objects or vilified as uh, villains or dehumanized as less than or the kind of extreme of the kind of martial arts stoic superhero right and so all four of those examples are let's say less than aspirational and probably placed in more of a a position of non-human i think now we're looking at a case where whether it is their latin culture or their uh, asian culture but not just for them i think in general for their generation and this is something I see with my students as well as with my children being mixed race is now a normal thing, right? It, it, it is so normative. And, and so this next generation is so much, so much more progressive than we ever were. Like my, my kids are obsessed with this movie right now. They've been watching my daughter's into musicals called prom. And it's a movie about a, a kind of school that does a, um, a gay prom to allow for its gay students to have a prom experience. And my daughter's running around all day singing this song about how it's so hard to be gay in Indiana. (laughs) And, you know, she's never been to Indiana and she's not gay, but you know, it's, it's really beautiful. Right. And it's amazing. And, you know, like she and her friends and everybody around us, I think in that generation sees the world in a very, very different way. Uh, than we did where I think we grew up in a moment where it was a very binary condition of you are or you are not. And, you know, maybe more extreme would be like on, on the black end of that spectrum where like, you know, there's literally the one drop rule, right? You, you one drop of black blood and you are black. But then, you know, now there's even like, I, I saw this recently, there's a TikTok movement going around, you know, the, the video app, where all these mixed race people or children or young people are actually sharing the stories of what you just described, Annie, very specifically of mixed race people who can identify visually as being white and all of the racial slurs that they actually get a chance to overhear because they're placed into spaces where people assume that they are not other. And uh, 
I don't know. I, I think that with my kids right now, it's not something that I see this as, you know, a totally positive trend. And one of the things that has been compelling me throughout all of 2020 is like, despite all of the nasty shit we've been seeing and feeling and hearing, whether it's between BLM or anti-Asian hate or any of the above, like what I see in the next generation is very, very different than what I see happening amongst us, like our, our age groups. Let's take a break from this conversation to talk about our sponsor of this episode, Monograph. We're proud to partner with Monograph because they are helping to transform the practice of architecture, one design studio at a time. Tired of using dated and clunky software to manage your firm? Or do you feel frustrated wrangling all of your spreadsheets to get a clear view of where your project stands today? Monograph is here to help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets in real time. With their awesome Money Gantt, you can immediately understand project performance across your entire firm portfolio. Need to adjust your projects week to week? Their new tool, Resource, allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Be proactive with Monograph. Hey, Evelyn, I want to ask this question because, you know, yesterday, one of those fuming things for me that I posted on Instagram Instagram is this, you know, you guys know about this show that's going on at MoMA right now, Reconstructions, which are a group of uh, Black architects, basically, and their own respective cities sort of rediscovering or claiming right, Black spaces and stuff. And I posted on Instagram because I heard that the show was cut down short, first of all, and for the first time, probably of uh, any kind of museum or modern art show, they did not acquire any of the work in their collections. And they also refused to let the show travel, which there have been requests. So uh, that got me like really upset. And I was also thinking about then, you know, have we as Asian architects you know, have we actually also done something like that? The kind of rediscovery of, you know, Asian spaces in cities that have buried in their history. I mean, certainly this goes back to curricula, you know, like in K through 12, right? I mean, if I think back about U.S. history, because I came here for my last two years of high school, I remember taking U.S. history. I don't really remember anything other than that, you know, there are these Chinese people who came and work on the railroads. And then, you know, Menzanar, right? And that's about it, the mentioning of Asian cultures and stuff. You know, so both in terms of the curriculum and also in terms of whether we need to also rediscover Asian spaces in cities. I wonder how you guys feel. Well, if you got Manzanar, you already got more than most. You know, I, I would say even that is typically, my experience was not discovered in like pre- college experience. And the only reason I discovered it was because of the Asian American studies minor. But I think it is a, a, a complex one that I think is, I don't know of any. And I would say that that is maybe going back to, uh, you know, my previous comments about we have not been a very vocal minority. Um, and we have been a minority that has chosen to take the path of blending in. And I, I think maybe that is one of the things that you know, is the complexity of the issue. Previously, Annie, you talked about how our, you know, East Asian heritage uh, responds to kind of like, let's say, the greater good and, and thinking about what's best for the community. But the perception of what's best for the community oftentimes is about blending in, right? That blending in is what's best for the community rather than drawing attention and rather than putting a spotlight on any of our issues or our struggles. It's actually to put your head down and overcome them despite those situations. I was just remembering, recalling when my grandfather, my father talked about my grandfather and all of the community, they had their own bank, right? They lent to each other because they didn't trust anyone else. And they'd come together on Sundays and, oh, Alvin, you want to start a business? You want to start a restaurant? Or you want to start, you know, a farm? I don't know, um, any of those things. You want to start an architecture practice? Okay, Annie, Ming, let's all, uh, Evelyn, let's all chip in and help Alvin. And Alvin, you'd pay it back. So it wasn't just only about 
blending in, but helping each other and building our own community. And, you know, I think the whole model minority was meant to keep us from also creating common cause and having a stronger voice in civil rights. So, you know, when people just laud us as being uh, law-abiding, socioeconomically strong, taking pride in education, that, you know, it's also about keeping us apart. So, you know, it's just what we do with ourselves and what society does to us. Yeah. I mean, I found recently, and I need to find out where that source is, but a good quarter of the kind of pan-Asian demographics live below poverty poverty line. So in a way, like our total Asian group, pan-Asian group, is in fact the most sort of impoverished in terms of the proportion of folks who are living below poverty line, uh, more so than Black, more so than Latino, Latino population. And I need to find that statistic. So there are many it's, people of our needs, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's specific, I believe, to New York City, but I believe it was okay. New York City. One, one, York in four, City. One, one in four Asians are living below the, the poverty, poverty line, line. Yeah. which is higher than any other ethnic group. Right. But it is very clearly, like, let's say the our community is often defined monolithically and defined monolithically by the success of those at the extreme end of things. You know, those that are the, the stereotypes of going to Harvard and going to math camp and uh, overachievement are both things that define us. But then at the same time, you know, I think that's something that I you know, mentioned in the my little talk, which was we see that at the academic level, but oftentimes if that same you know, proportion of student success at the academic level is reflected to the profession and into leadership and into like, let's say the pedestal level of those that let's say come in on our lecture series or in the exhibitions or those that are actually moving the needle of what, who our aspirations are, then we're not being reflected in the same proportion Right. Because if you look at, you know, the industry as a whole right now and, you know, Annie, you teach as well, you know, when we look at our our student bodies that we're dealing with, you know, Asians and Asian Americans are are highly, highly represented and and some would argue overrepresented. But then when you look at practice leadership or lecture series or uh, kind of the impact on the profession, there's a clear filtering out that is occurring in terms of reaching that upper pinnacle of representation in leading the field. Right. That's a kind of really interesting point and maybe a point that needs to be more, um, you know, studied too. You know, where where did the dropout occur and why can't uh, more of the Asians rise to that leadership level? But I think that we have to also acknowledge that within our Asian cultures and the Chinese culture also, and the Japanese culture, there's an embedded class system that has gone on for history. Like even I think that the issue of class is probably its own bias, right? Within our own group, you know, our parents, our grandparents group, uh, they're very obvious, right? That they're trying to get up the ladder to be of a different class. So somehow that issue of hanging on to the class or the caste, you know, within the Asian cultures, even amongst Asian cultures, right? You guys probably all seen that Ali Wong, Baby Cobra, you know, um, did you see that one, that that kind of comedy skit where she talked about the difference between the different uh, Asian cultures and the the class between half fancy them. Asian half, half jungle Asian yeah they're half, right <laughs> the fancy Asian post Olympic and the jungle Asian post disease or something right that kind of thing so even amongst ourselves there's this kind of racist and class idea going on there but I was also thinking about you know you guys all heard about recently I only heard about recently about the 18 people massacre in the uh, Los Angeles Chinatown that happened in the 1800s. 
I mean, we yeah, it's the lar largest, largest race massacre in the history race of the massacre country. of the country. Our Chinese, you know, eighteen Chinese people being basically lynched and killed in LA's Chinatown, and you don't see a memorial, don't see a plaque. We never heard about it. I never heard about it until recently, and I only knew recently that the entire Union Station train station was built on top of what was Chinatown, right? And that whole displacement, nothing is recorded. That somehow these history, like you said, you know, of staying quiet and being kind of living up to that kind of model minority myth, basically uh, shut down a lot of our own sense of identity that that I think must have some devastating effect, even in terms of the confidence of our children to come. You know, why isn't this race, these races have a, a history? Why are we not studying it? And yeah, right, because you that that whole phrase about, you know, if you don't remember it, you know, you're bound to repeat your mistakes again kind of thing. Yeah, so I'm wondering if education, you know, at that K to 12 level, well, to the public, maybe something that we all need to spend some time focusing on. You know, in your and Alvin and your teaching, do you ever bring in your Asian heritage into your class lectures, or do you bring Asian practitioners into your into your work? Maybe not so specifically about Asianness, uh, but definitely about no, not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned. You know, mm -hmm. you mentioned Billy Tian, and I'm trying to think of, you know, like um, Mylin. Um, yeah. We just went through Athens, Ohio, as on our drive through uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> to Arkansas. Yeah, and I think of, well, I went to Ohio State, so I think of my, uh, you know, Ohio, part of my Ohio roots. But just curious if, if that ever, you know, plays into your practice, plays into your teaching. I would say that for myself, like the acknowledgement of the canon of architecture uh, having been defined by a predominantly white male perspective is something that comes up constantly and something that I acknowledge quite frequently in particular because, you know, like for example, recently, uh, well, not that recently, I guess it was before the pandemic because it was a walking tour that I did with students, but we, I did a walking tour through uh, Venice beach with a bunch of students where we went to go look at a bunch of projects that were designed by the LA 10. So Tom main, Eric Owen Moss, Frank Gary, Frederick Fisher, um, a bunch of old white men that, you know, did fantastic architecture. And it dawned on me as we were walking that literally not one of my students was ever going to grow up to be an old white man. And I, I stopped and turned to all of them and said, you know, I, I realize we're going to go look at a bunch of buildings by a bunch of people that don't look like you or you will ever look like or be able to identify with. It doesn't preclude it from being great architecture, but it is something to remember and acknowledge and think about that, you know, that's why you're here and that's why we're, we're doing this is so that someday somebody else can go on a tour and it won't just be old white men. And I think it's also something that we're trying to acknowledge at USC um, as director of the program. One of the things I'm working, I'm doing is working with our history theory faculty to uh, identify what we're trying to call as uh, canonical versus non-canonical in terms of saying, okay, if the canon of, of architecture is historically dominated from a singular perspective, it doesn't mean it's less important, but it does mean that there's other perspectives to take into account. So how do we share that perspective? But every time we share a canonical writing or piece of work or case study, that there's always a counterpoint, which is either something that comes from outside of the canon that shares similar values, or maybe something that comes from outside of the canon that challenges those values uh, in terms of thinking about you know, the fact that architecture is not a Western European conception. It's actually something that is a global phenomenon. We, we, you know, all cultures have architecture and all cultures have great architecture. It doesn't mean that, you know, only the Mises of the world are the ones that we can acknowledge as that's the aspiration. And then I would also say that in my practice, I've definitely taken advantage of my Asian-ness in terms of 
my international work in Thailand, China, in particular, those two countries. But uh, I would say in those two places, I've been able to secure work and get work because I think of my, as I would put it, feet in both worlds. The fact that they are looking for Western expertise and Western uh, kind of influence in their architectural spheres, but that I can connect with my clients there and understand their values a little bit differently than somebody who is not, doesn't have a shared heritage with them. As a young architect coming into the profession, or as somebody who is a firm leader with an established practice, you know, what, where are the opportunities going forward to create more diversity, to bring more of this thought leadership forward, to uncover the history? I think there's definitely some truth in what Alvin's saying about his children being mixed and, and my children are mixed and Ming's children are mixed. Um, you know, that, that it's, it's not a burden. It's an opportunity. But how do we set up that next generation for success and, and where, you know, what can we do from our position? I mean, I think representation really matters. My partner and I run a growing practice and we're both Asian American women. And, you know, the reality of running an architecture practice and being a leader in the profession, like all of you on this call are, it's not what we thought it was in school. It's not about being like a lone wolf, a brilliant man who um, is like an artistic genius who is kind of isolated from the, the realities of the world. I think running a practice is much more complex and much more open than that. And becoming an architect that gives a lecture at USC or becoming an architect that leads a chapter of the AIA, there are a lot of paths to that that we're not, that I wasn't aware of. I thought when, when I was at the GSD, I thought there was only one way to be an architect and I knew I was never going to be that kind of architect. But it turns out there's actually a lot of different ways to be an architect. And, you know, the perception is that you know, an Asian student who's trained to excel, we excel as great employees, but maybe not great firm leaders. But there's so much out there that can be done. And I don't know, it's part of my personal agenda is like giving students skills to know how to start their own architecture firms and learn how to become a leader in the profession and try to find their unique path through the profession, because there's a lot of ways in. Um, and then I think elevating elevating voices that are not traditionally heard. And I think the schools, like even, you know, I'm like an old millennial. I think there's a couple other old millennials on this call. Things have changed a lot since I was in school in terms of who's featured at lectures and who's leading studios. And I think schools are doing a better and better job. And a lot of that is driven by, I think, the next generation's hunger for social justice. And they are so much more advanced and so much more progressive than we ever were. And they're demanding change from their schools. But I, I feel like there's a lot of hope out there if we can open the door to people and show them there's a path in. Evelyn, you know, in your, in your series on, with the AIA, uh, the Practice Innovation Lab, thinking about alternative paths from traditional practice, not that I don't admire all of you for having your own practices. I've always existed outside of that. I started out in traditional practice, but then went into city government and into nonprofit management as a leader and also in AIA. And so, you know, understanding that in our work, collaboration is key and finding different ways of bringing that into practice. Is it through government? Is it through construction? Are you a developer? Are you an educator? But I mean, you can do all these things at the same time, right? That I think the next generation, the real gift is that they multitask much better than we all do. So finding new ways of developing a practice that builds community, that's collaborative, that strengthens all the different voices and does things beautifully in terms of design excellence and problem, creative problem solving. I just think there's endless possibilities. And how do it, the thing is, how do we all, more seasoned, um, not necessarily as seasoned as I am, but um, bring those voices to the fore and build their confidence that they can do it. 
for me, really thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion as things that we want to think about systematically rather than additively. And I think that is the thing that I feel is the big knee-jerk reaction to 2020 that has happened in a lot of places is that diversity has been treated a little bit like sprinkles on top of a cupcake. You know, like, like we can keep the cupcake as it is and throw some sprinkles on top and now we have diversity which in a lot of ways as an architect, I, I think of maybe the way a lot of people like lead works in terms of thinking about sustainability, right? Like you can design the building and then at the end, throw some solar panels, put some recycling stations, bike racks. And now you've got uh, a lead certified building that uh, is sustainable, but it was really never part of the active integration of the design and, and truly sustainable architecture actually op comes from a design standpoint, right? Whether, whether you're siting the building, whether you're looking at the solar orientation, how you're designing for natural ventilation and daylighting and all of these things that are actually at the core of making the architecture better, not just getting that checkbox, right? And so if we think about diversity in that same way, it's actually part of the design process of culture and trying to identify what the culture we want to have exist, whether it's in our schools, in our firms, in our practices, in our daily lives, and that we are going out of our way um, to say that, you know, like at USC, one of the things that we've done is change our admission requirements to say that it's not just GPA, GRE test scores, and your portfolio strength, that we're adding a quantifiable thing, which we're identifying as ability to contribute to student culture, which is a little bit of a gray area, but gives us leverage to say, okay, what are we see this student as adding value in a different way, or this student as adding value in another way. And those become ways that we can measure metrics in, in terms of beginning to think about the value that we get from culture. And I think the culture of a studio or an office or a school is really something that thrives off of its diversity, like same the same way that uh, our cities do, the same way that our ecosystems do. Like if we think of diversity and culture as a sort of ecology, then balance is required, right? It, it means that you can't just throw something in. You have to actually have a mixture of things that give and take and that, uh, kind of live off of one another. I'll pick up the issue about diversity in a different way. The word intersectionality have sort of come to our consciousness as of late. But I'm noting that we have uh, four women here, five, including Janine here, and um, Elvin. I think the struggle that I have sort of subscribed to in architecture was more about getting women's voices in the profession. Like Alvin had said, you know, so many of his students and so many of mine were women and then, you know, they drop out and they don't get into any leadership position. So that has always been like my first priority. If they are Asian, better, you know, then I'm supporting also that intersectional minority as well. But you can also do that in terms of the disciplines, like architecture is a wide discipline, but you know, I have very long time ago realized that my definition of architecture is that architecture is there to support a space, to support an interior, like architecture makes a space. So I've always been quite upset that architects don't get into the interior and don't study it and see it as a kind of a minor activity or activity always subscribed to women uh, throughout history. So uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I think I left USC to go and teach interior architecture at Woodbury. And, you know, one of the activities that we ended up doing was to come up with a symposium called Unmentionables. Uh, the Unmentionables symposium basically said, you know, anything that you cannot say in architecture school that you could say here in the symposium. And these ideas that have been dormant, that have been seen as minor that are unworthy of bringing into the kind of architecture fold are in fact to be celebrated. And I feel that for young people, I think in terms of charting their path, I would like to encourage people to think of the possibility of hyphenation 
Like you're not just an architect, right? You're an architect, interior designer, you're an architect, acoustic expert, or, you know, there, there are these other identities that make you unique wherever that might be in terms of within, even within the discipline and certainly within your own sort of culture that you grew up in. And I think that the world would be better if we honor all the people with many hyphens after that first word, architect. And I see that as a hopeful thing. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practiceofarch. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.